You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. All good over there? Yes, all is well. Excellent, excellent. Today's show is taped, so unfortunately, no opportunity for call-in, but we would love you to follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC. And if you have any um, questions for us or any show topics that you're interested in, please do email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. And this show, along with all of our other shows, live, taped, they're all turned into podcasts, and uh, they are on iTunes, SoundCloud, all your favorite podcast platforms, and you just search out The Health Hub. You can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and you can find them on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. So today I wanted to broach the subject of electrolytes and just give you a, a brief explanation of what they are, um, some issues where they may you may find that you're having symptoms of electrolyte deficiency, and just sort of give you a, an overview of this topic. Electrolytes are substances that conduct electricity when they're dissolved in water. They're essential for um, for us for living. Uh, they, they impact so many bodily functions. Electrolytes are involved in the transmission of electrical impulses for proper functioning of heart, of the heart, of nerves, and of muscles. So, absolutely important important for our existence. Um, we have a number of electrolytes in our body: uh, sodium, potassium, calcium, bicarbonate, magnesium, chloride, and phosphate. And when we have an imbalance of electrolytes, many symptoms can be experienced, but uh, common ones are twitching, weakness, and in severe cases, heart rhythm disturbances. Um, those are the main ones. There, there are a whole bunch of them, but those are ones that are quite common. Uh, when, when you have a magnesium deficiency, a lot of people are, are very familiar with leg cramping, and um, uh, one of the first go-tos is to replenish with magnesium. But um, a lot of, lot of symptoms can come up when you have a, um, an imbalance of electrolytes. And older adults are particularly at risk of electrolyte imbalance. When we have... Um, these these symptoms it's you know it can be from many different things but common causes of electrolyte imbalances arise from uh, losing fluid in our body so fluid loss can come from um, you know extensive and intensive physical activity where there's a lot of sweating uh, even overuse of saunas uh, if you get sick, if you've got vomiting or diarrhea, this can lead to an excessive loss of fluids, which can throw your balance off of electrolytes, poor diets that are low in essential nutrients, and malabsorption of essential nutrients. So 
you can be eating the right foods, but they're not being absorbed. That's what that situation means. Situation is pointing to, and medications and diuretics, antibiotics, and chemotherapy drugs can also be a cause of uh, electrolyte imbalances. So the question arises: Is how do we replenish electrolytes when they are um, when they are deficient or are out of balance? So I just wanted to give you a few simple remedies um, when we have or you have a perceived electrolyte imbalance so that you can correct it at home. Um, Sea salt. So sodium is one of the electrolytes that we lose very quickly through sweating. And ingesting a little bit of sea salt or Himalayan salt can really help to replenish not only the sodium, but other important electrolytes like magnesium, calcium, chloride, and potassium. So, um, Hydration is important. It's very important. You can, what you can do uh, in this instance is make a solution. It's called Soleil. And you, you basically put uh, rocks of Himalayan salt in a mason jar, fill it up with water and let it saturate. And then you take a teaspoon of this Soleil and put it into a cup of regular water and, and drink that. Now it is quite salty, even though you're only putting a teaspoon in, but this really does help with hydration and um, your electrolyte balancing. Also, coconut water. Coconut water is packed with nutrients and it is low in sugar. So it's a really quick and great way to replenish electrolytes, especially potassium. So as you see, when I'm going to be giving you a quick little recipe at home, it's combinations of all these things that will really help give you a, a well-rounded um, at-home remedy for electrolyte imbalances. And of course, getting your electrolytes and getting the, the, the essential minerals from your foods is important. So eating a very Good diet, leafy green veggies, lots of fruits are great. Now, uh, in in the sports world, and you see it on TV a lot, um, a lot of the sports drinks are where people go to replenish their electrolytes or when they're sweating. Um, but sport, uh, store-bought sport drinks can be very high in sugar and some can contain artificial flavors. So you can easily put together a homemade electrolyte uh, balancing recipe with just you know, some of the ingredients that I that I gave you, the salt and the coconut water, adding some fruits to it and, and just making a, um, a nice little drink for yourself at home. So here's one quick recipe. You can take 500 milliliters of cold water or coconut water. Coconut water is um, adds a nice little flavor to it. I Add love a cup, coconut water. You love coconut water? So do I. Yeah. Um, it's very refreshing, especially when it's really chilled. I love it. It's, exactly. it's great. So adding coconut water, and then you can put in two tablespoons of maple syrup, and then a half a teaspoon of Himalayan salt, a quarter cup of lemon juice, and a quarter cup of lime juice. Of course, you know, you can adjust the taste if that's a little bit too bitter for you or a little bit too sweet for you. But those are, uh, how many are they? One, two, three, four, five ingredients that you can throw together um, and make a very quick and refreshing electrolyte balancing drink. Very good. Very good. Yes. So you can also, if you really want to get fancy, you can throw it into a blender and add some ice and make sort of like a slushy idea. But use that. Um, and, and again, the, the salt recipe that I gave you, the sea salt in the water, that, that's, that's good to have uh, frequently just to help balance things out, keep your hydration um, up there. So again, keep your electrolytes in balance. Know, that, know the signs of an electrolyte imbalance and um, take care of yourself. So on to today's show, um, we have a, a documentary from the CBC. It's called Be Afraid, The Science of Fear with Robert Verdicchia. Uh, very interesting documentary. I watched it myself, so um, I know firsthand how interesting it is uh, and, and very informative. 
And almost everyone has at least a fear, and sometimes it's irrational, and sometimes it's crippling. But what exactly is a fear? What triggers our fear threshold? Why are we repelled by some things and not by others? And in this documentary, uh, Roberto answers many of these questions. It's very entertaining and it's very informative. Roberto Verdecchia is an award-winning documentary director, writer, and producer. For more than 25 years, he has worked on an incredibly wide range of documentaries, all the way from indigenous rights in the Amazon, the wild insect life inside your home, high-speed particle physics, and mountain gorillas, to the mystery of what killed Edgar Allan Poe, where he actually starred as Poe himself. Aside from making movies, Roberto also has developed numerous numerous social and environmental projects from neighborhood newspapers in Toronto to nonviolence training in Sierra Leone. Currently, he lives in Toronto with his partner, daughter, and his dog. So we're going to talk to him about the filming of his documentary. We're going to learn, uh, is fear innate or is it learned? Is fear a necessary emotion? Can we overcome our fears, and many other things that, uh, that he learned and has shared with us in his new documentary, Be Afraid, The Science of Fear. We'll be right back. I'm 
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Um, our show today is taped. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC. Roberto, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an interesting documentary. I've watched it, and I really do encourage everyone else to watch it. It's fascinating. It's fun. But whatever got you on to this topic of fear? Um, it was kind of from the result of my last show for Nature of Things, previous show, was all about the, the wildlife that lives in your home. So, if, uh, you know, creepy, crawly insects, spiders, all those kinds of things that we all live with. Doesn't matter how clean your house is, everybody has them. Um, so we were filming these, all these different kinds of bugs and stuff. And I used to be quite freaked out by house centipedes. You know, not phobic, but I, I certainly didn't like them, and I was very, you know, freaked out by them. And in filming them, and in looking at them more, and studying them, and researching them, getting to know them, I, you know, I really overcame all that kind of jitters that I had about them. And then I also saw other people in the show, um, you know, react really strongly to spiders, whereas I don't, you know, I don't have a problem at all with spiders. Anyway, it was all that kind of thing, like how how differing people's reactions were to apparently fearful, fear-inducing objects. It just got me thinking about what's, you know, what's going on with fear, what do we know about fear, how to overcome our fears. So I started researching that theme, and, and it led me to that show. How much uh, back time did you have to go through before you actually started uh, physically doing the documentary? How much research time, How background much, yeah, time? Yeah, background time before you were able to actually hone in on your topics and your people. Oh, um, I, I don't know. I can't remember. Maybe three months, four months. I mean, part of it is is it, it's the nature of the, the proposal business, the pitching business. So you have to pitch something to CBC, and it takes them a while to look at the, your pitch, and then they get back to us and said, you know, we're interested, but maybe you sh- we don't like this story. Maybe that story is more interesting. So it takes a bit longer. But you know, maybe it was four, or five months from sort of initial pitch to okay, let's go. We could we could do this. It's very, it's very interesting, especially the people that you uh, talked about. And I want to take people sort of segment by segment through it so they get a good sense of what the, they'll be in for when they're watching it. But what did you learn? Uh, what, what's most surprised you uh, when you were doing this research about fear? I think, you know, the, the main thing I take away from the experience is... Um, you know, I, I guess I started with this kind of naive point of view about fear that, you know, fear is bad. Fear is bad. You, you want to avoid it. Uh, it's a bad thing. The less you have of it, the better. You know, that kind of fear is our enemy, that kind of thing. Um, and I really gained an appreciation for fear and how amazing it works, how amazingly fine-tuned our threat detection systems are. And, and I began to learn, you know, that fear is actually on your side, if it becomes debilitating, then sure, it's not. It becomes a hindrance, obviously, if you're afraid of too many things in the world, so you can have a decent life. But, um, but generally, I began to notice that fear is is there to keep me safe, and that's why all creatures have some kind of, whether it's an emotion we'll call fear or some kind of threat response or threat detection system and response. Um, you know, without fear, we wouldn't we we wouldn't be here. Just plain and simple. That's it's what keeps us alive. So it's, I start to see it as more my friend and I can when I feel it I can I can check is it you know is this is this totally irrational or or can I lean into this a little bit and 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 cozy up a bit more to my 
my fear, expand my, my sense of resilience. Well, is fear uh, an emotion that is evoked? How do I say this properly? Why is it necessary? Is it a protection mechanism? It is a safety mechanism? Uh, yeah, I think it's a safety mechanism. I mean, it's really, you know, it works at the level of, you know, you're walking down the street and, and something just looks a little bit weird up ahead at night. Maybe you can't see very clearly. Maybe you see a figure run across your, your, your field of vision. You're not immediately terrified, of course, but something goes on in your brain. You go, what was that? And your, your, your senses tune in. You become super alert to what that was. And you figure out, oh, it's just uh, it was a guy walking down the street. No big deal. But if you see suddenly one guy running and then three guys chasing that person and then five more people running after that person, and then, then you start to wonder, you know, should I also start running? <laughs> because yeah. maybe there's something dangerous. So, so it's, it's there to keep us safe. It's, it's that, that's the response, I'm sure. Well, I'm not going. I'm not going sequentially in the in the documentary, but uh, to this point, you you did a segment about a baby, and uh, you know, testing if that's the right word, a baby with different uh, pictures and things. And what did you find there? Yeah, that was a whole section. We we were looking at the question of whether there are innate fears, like are human beings born to fear certain things or born already sort of fearing certain things. And and the main thing we were looking at were snakes and spiders because, like across the board, those are the top kind of creatures that the more people are afraid of, and disproportionately. So even, you know, there are countries that don't have any poisonous snakes or spiders. Even in Canada, there are very few snakes and spiders that could really hurt you. Um, but the people's fear is sort of through the roof, and it doesn't make any sense, really. So we began to think, well, maybe there's an evolutionary reason. Maybe it's hardwired into us. We're born with these fears. So there's a doctor in Pittsburgh who's at Carnegie Mellon who's studying that to see what, what it is, you know, what we're born with or not. And he's come to the conclusion that there really are no innate fears, um, but what he's what he does is he he looks around five months of age. He takes babies about five months, six months, and he shows them pictures of snakes and spiders, but also flowers and you know rodents, uh, sharks, things like that. And he tracks their attention. And he's found that around five months of age, babies will track images of snakes and spiders longer than they'll track any other image. So it, so it draws their attention. So it doesn't mean that they're afraid of these things, but it means that it seems like we are born with a kind of you know innate threat detection system for certain kinds of things, like snakes and spiders, and that could be an evolutionary um, could could have resulted from evolution. Um, but but the the fact is that you still have to learn those fears. So if when you're an infant and you see a snake and you go to reach out for a snake, if nobody around you says, oh, no, that's, you know, ah, if nobody responds negatively, you'll reach out for that snake, you'll grab it, you'll hold it, you'll, you'll pet it, you'll do whatever you want with it, and you'll grow up to, you know, you won't fear snakes if nobody ever gives you a sign that you shouldn't. Um, and same with spiders. But the fact is, people tend to give babies those signs, you know, with good reason, you, you could get bitten, I suppose, but they're really, in a sense, not much more scary than, than many other things. So that was what that whole, I hope that answered the question. No, it did, I did absolutely. <laughs> but actually, that segment brought up something uh, interesting uh, in that are we being, is our fear mechanism being uh, sort of pushed out of us as we evolve? Um, because I think there was a segment or a little piece talking about, you know, um, 
we're not forced to be in, in life-threatening situations most right. of the time like we were before. And so is that emotion, is that um, instinctual fear, is it being bred out of us as time goes by, or are they being replaced by different types of fears? Yeah, this was a, it was a theme we, we just touched on a little bit in the film, because it's really just sort of speculation. These people who experts in the field who are studying fear and and people, even the one researcher who's studying a woman who has no fear, she she lacks the, the fear center in her brain, so she can't, she doesn't feel fear, which is an incredible story. So these you know these people are speculating a little bit, and and you know there's not a lot of this is not sort of evidence we can point to to say we are less fearful now or it's evolving in that direction away from fear. But but a number of people did point out this thing of like that response of that that kind of incredible incredibly fast and in a way stressful response right the body goes ramps up gets ready to run or to fight or you know your whole body's ready to go um it it may not be the healthiest thing in this world anymore because and what's happening is one person was talking about how we're triggered by the news for example we you know, you can read the news on your cell phone any time of the day, 24 hours, 24-7. We're getting this, this kind of bombarding of of news images, which when you see a bomb go off on the news, you, part of your brain sort of responds as if it's under threat. Um, and it becomes stressful, but there's nothing you can do. So it's a very different world than a world where other people had said in the film, you're being hunted you know, by lions and tigers, or you really do have to fear every single day to make sure you're not going to get killed or you're going to find enough food. We have a lot of our basic needs taken care of. So some people were saying, yeah, that the kind of extreme sort of stress disorders that we're seeing, a lot mm-hmm. of people have these anxiety disorders, uh, may be a result of having this kind of incredible threat detection system that's kind of working overtime and it doesn't really need to be and so maybe they were also speculating that maybe in the future it'll it'll tampen down a little bit yeah there there in in that response and comparing those two it's almost like there's no resolution of fear now whereas you're 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 faced with a bear you you get away from the bear the fear is done and then you know we're like a heightened in this heightened sense all the time yeah yeah, it's right. an interesting yeah, concept. Point. Very interesting. Yeah, concept. yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was very interesting. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't go into it super in depth in the film because there wasn't. Uh, yeah, but like I said, it's just sort of speculation. But it's very, very interesting to think about for sure. Well, in speaking about this w- woman who had no fear, um, give us the background of what you learned about how the brain processes fear and and why this woman wasn't experiencing fear. Yeah, this is an extreme case and, and a famous case in the neurological uh, research. Um, so there's typically in, in people's brains, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala. And it's known as kind of the fear center. It's the threat detection center. And it's described as kind of, you know, you're in the world and it's kind of scanning. All your senses are scanning your environment at all times. And if anything's kind of weird or out of place or strange, your amygdala fires up and goes or sort of like a radar. It says, you know, what's that? Beep, 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 beep. Pay attention to that. And you'll decide if that's threatening or not. And if it's threatening, then there's a whole fear response that's, that's perhaps launched with um, adrenaline and so on, um, where your senses focus in on what you have to 
what kind of information you need to glean from from the environment, and you decide if you need to run or fight or, you know, that fight-or-flight response. But it's all kind of based on the amygdala as that gatekeeper. And so this woman um, in the U.S., is all we really know about her, she has this extreme, extremely rare genetic condition where, as a result of this condition, her amygdala is basically gone. It's been calcified away, and it's been sort of... She doesn't have an amygdala. And so as a result of that, she's unable to feel fear. Um, and so this doctor, Dr. Feinstein, in the film, we talked to him. He's been working with her for about over a decade now, almost two decades, um, to, to try to understand better how it is she lives in the world, how she experiences emotions, what it means to live without an amygdala. And he spent you know, lots of time trying to scare her in different, in different mm-hmm. ways, showing her um, scary movies and taking her to scary haunted attractions and, and all that kind of stuff. And she doesn't show any response at all because of that, um, that condition, that lack of amygdala. And yet she's able to cry. You know, she, she watches sad movies. She feels sad. She feels happy. She feels compassion. She, in all other respects, she's perfectly normal. The interesting part about that, there was um, the part of her story that you documented was that she had a gun put to her head and really didn't think much of it. Now, even if you don't feel that fear response, wouldn't you intuitively know that that's not a good situation to be in? Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I, I had to ask him a number of times, like, how like, how does it really work? Like, wouldn't you? And And he, you know, he... Dr. Feinstein explained it as, you know, she understands logically what's, what's, what the issue is, and she understands the laws of physics, she, he would say. So he, she knows she has to be careful when she's crossing the road. You know, if she, she gets hit by a car, she could be injured. But it's all, it's kind of like it's all at a logical level, and it's not at a fearful, emotional level. So it's almost like a recipe, like that you have, or a guidebook that you that she would have to read, or an instruction manual that she would have to read to to learn about what's safe and what's not. So you and I are walking down in a park late at night, and we decide to cut through this dark park because we're trying to get home faster, even though we know it's probably not a good thing. And then we see some weird-looking people up ahead, and they're shouting and they're acting a bit weird, and they call us and they tell us to come over to them. You know, immediately your back, your your hairs go up, and your and your back gets up, and you start to think, eh, I better turn around and run, or you start to. There's a feeling inside you right away. This is threatening. This could be dangerous. She, so she doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. So she wouldn't. She wouldn't know. She would have to explain to her if you're in a park late at night, and there are people who look, who look weird to you, and you might have to explain what that means to look weird. And they are acting in a strange way, and they call you over to them, and they have knives. Don't go over. Um, so same with when she has a gun pointed to her head. I think she understood that, that the gun was dangerous, that people can get killed by guns, but she didn't understand the kind of emotional, she didn't have that kind of emotional reaction that, that these are dangerous people, that, that this is a threatening thing, that I better not say those things about my neighbors anymore because this is what happens when I, when I threaten or when I say bad things about my drug-dealing neighbors, which is what the story was, was yeah. about. Um, she just didn't think it was a big deal. And so when the cops came to interview her and the neighbor had called it in, she just kind of said, you know, nothing happened. It's just yeah, I had a gun pointed to me at my head, but, but they didn't shoot me, so what's the problem? Yeah. It was that kind of... At a, you know, at a logical level, it makes yeah, it, it, was, it was very bizarre. It was a very bizarre, yeah, totally segment. bizarre, totally bizarre. Because I'm watching, yeah. I'm going, 
okay, she might not have fear of this, but why wouldn't she just know that she could get hurt? It's, I guess, and, and that's the reason, coming back to where we started, that this emotion um, is important to us and that it is ingrained in us. It comes back to playing out and getting a whole picture of each scenario right. that you're in during the day. Yeah. Very fascinating. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that park example that I gave is, in fact, another story that we don't mention, but it happened to her also, that she did go through this park late at night and she was... Uh, she was threatened with a knife, um, and she knew she was. She, she didn't say she was afraid, but she knew this person could hurt her. Um, but she didn't respond in in the fearful, screaming "Let me go, let me go" kind of wide-eyed look about her. Um, and then the guy who was threatening her, the assailant, actually thought it was so strange that he got freaked out. Exactly. And, and he, and he I was left. just thinking <laughs> they, that would that would you know what that would be a natural response as well. Did she have this condition all of her life, or was this developed? As of around age 10 or 11 is when the amygdala sort of shut down completely. So I think she has some early memories. She talked about being scared of snakes, I think. Um, When she was a little kid, she said she was really afraid of a snake or something that a friend of hers had or that she'd Mm -hmm. seen. But then, again, they took her to an exotic pet store to see if they could get her to be afraid of snakes. And and, um, Dr. Feinstein said she was... You know, she's even though she said she was afraid of snakes, she showed no fear whatsoever. She actually was reaching into the tank to to get the snakes and the the pet store people sort of had to had to hold her back a little bit, say, "Well, careful, careful." You know, this one you got to handle carefully. And yeah, that learned response so, was was wiped out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. We're going to take a quick yeah. break here, and we'll come back to continue talking about this great documentary. Shall I? 
Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking to Roberto Verdicchia, and he is the creator of the new documentary on the CBC, Be Afraid, the Science of Fear. Um, Roberto, we talked about some very interesting... We've actually gone backwards and worked our way up towards the other aspects. So when people watch the film, they're going to be seeing uh, what we're talking about now is uh, irrational fears. They'll be seeing this piece first. And um, again, when we're talking about fears, we, f- we assume that or, or you know, what you've learned and what you've spoken about is that fears are learned. But somebody who has an irrational fear, that's not necessarily true, is it? Yeah, no, it, it kind of works at a different level, the, the phobias. And, I, and I'm not exactly sure, um, you know, how it is that somebody develops a phobia. I mean, bi- certainly the biographical element, but, um, you know, why something would, would go to such an incredible length. Like, so it's one thing to sort of say, oh, uh, I had a problem with a snake bit my ankle when I was a kid, so I, I'm careful with snakes. But another thing is to not even be able to look at a picture in a book of a snake with some people who have phobias of snakes you know it's it's at that level which is irrational for sure well the woman who is afraid of the chicken yeah i don't recall <laughs> i don't recall her saying she was pecked by a chicken or something like that she just was freaked no. out by this chicken or all chickens yeah yeah and it was interesting because the the doctor who is working with her in this incredible treatment that she's um she's sort of developed she said it doesn't even really matter if you know when you first developed that phobia or what its roots might be you know so she could for example you could analyze that phobia she could say oh when i was a kid i was pecked by five or ten chickens and it freaked me out and nobody was around to answer to help me and so that's why even knowing that even if you know that and even if that is really what happened it doesn't matter that that phobia can't be controlled uh, or, de- or dealt with at a rational level, so because it just overrides your entire, your completely, it completely overrides your rational brain. Right, it's too late. So, so you have to address it uh, in terms of curing that phobia. Um, you have to address it somewhere else in some other way. Now, so it doesn't work at that logical level. In in her case, is her amygdala firing like irrationally? Is it lighting up far more than everybody else's? Is this an actual physiological thing that can be controlled? 
Yeah, yeah, it's exactly, it's like that. It's, it's um, for some reason, something in her brain says that a, uh, a chicken is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And her amygdala says, watch out, watch out, run, you know, whatever you need to do, protect yourself. The, the doctor, Kint, described it as the same kind of response that you or I would get if suddenly there was a tiger, you know, in the room that appeared, right? Some incredible predatory beast was in your house with you and you freaked out completely with, with good reason because you thought I could be killed at any moment. For them, it was the same. It's that kind of irrational response. And, and the therapy, that's, it's, it's interesting um, because we've had some guests on the show, uh, one in particular, we're talking about um, PTSD and how mm-hmm. um, talking about and reliving these events may not be helpful and may be actually uh, detrimental. And this almost, mm. to me, goes down that same line. There's no point hashing out where the phobia came. Let's deal with it. So she's, yeah. not doing, she's not doing psychology. She's not doing that type of talk therapy. What is she doing to help these people? Yeah, she's a psychologist at the University of Amsterdam, and she's, her treatment's based on this new kind of understanding that's developed about how memories work. That's actually a Canadian researcher or a guy who was working at McGill at the time. Now he's in New York somewhere, Kareem Nader, who in the year 2000, I think it was, published a paper around 2000, published a paper about how fear memories or memories in general, um, they're basically it's understood that they're not like a photograph. They're not, it's not like an archive that you have in your filing system. And when you see something in the world, you have this memory that comes up and tells you, what that is, and it's a dog, and the dogs are okay, and don't worry about it. it but, but what happens is that memories are subject to a thing called reconsolidation. So they're, they're dynamic, and they're kind of unstable, and they, they are called up in your brain, let's say, um, and then they get resaved. And maybe they get resaved with new information, right? That's why you're able to learn. In fact, it makes sense what this research is pointing out. But, but this woman, Dr. Kint in Amsterdam, read about this research, learned about how, how memories are working, and they're, they're subject to this resaving process, usually apparently during sleep, it seems, um, and discovered that there's a drug that's propranolol that's a kind of a heart medication that's been used for decades now already. And what, what that drug happens to do is it happens to block those memories from being resaved. It's just a kind of a chemical process where the protein synthesis that has to happen to resave that memory, um, it gets stopped. And so she developed this, uh, this treatment where somebody who's, you know, phobic of, in this case, in the film, we have this woman who's afraid of chickens, deeply, deeply afraid of chickens. She's exposed to this chicken, so this fear memory comes up in her brain. Um, at a certain point where it seems like the memory is there, it's fresh in her mind, it's open, it's a bit, you know, intuitive on the part of the doctor. They, they stop the exposure, she's given this pill of propanolol, she takes it, she has a good sleep at that, that night, and she comes back the next day and she's cured. The, the, the memory, that fear memory, the memory that says, oh my god, this is a chicken, you better start to run, your heartbeat better start to pound, you better start to get ready to, you know, it's wiped out. And so... What happens is there's a strange kind of disconnect. The person thinks in their cognitive brain, I'm afraid of chickens, but they see this chicken and they don't have the fear response. It's, it's so fascinating. They're left with this. 
Yeah, it's incredible. It is incredible. <laughs> one of the most amazing things. How I've ever heart felt. medication yeah. can, uh, you know, how she's reworked the the dynamics of of what this heart medication is doing. Uh, is it a neurotransmitter thing that she's affecting? Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's okay. a certain neurotransmitter that's supposed to that normally goes into saving memories. It's stopped and it's 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 functioning. It's blocked, and so those memories just don't get resaved. And in a way, you forget that you're supposed to be afraid of this thing. There's chicken or heights or claustrophobia or spiders or she's cured a, a huge amount of people. It's incredible. With a, like 85, 90% success rate. It's And no relapse is the other issue. And is it a one-time or two-time or is it one treatment and done or are these people on this medication forever? No. It's, yeah, it's one, one pill and you're done. If it works, then it works. So you're basically it's wiping just, out uh, a bad memory. Yeah. But there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's another aspect of the film, uh, a gentleman is, his fear is heights, and you're using, uh, you know, you're using, but therapists are using virtual reality um, to try and cure that. Now, to me, that would freak me out, um, but it's, it's working, this therapy, and, and I found that extremely interesting, too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a guy in the um, University of... Uh, Quebec in Gatineau, who has this incredible VR lab, a super immersive kind of 3D cube system. Um, and it's especially good for things like heights or they explained to, to me, you know, the, the idea is that with a therapist, you can, if you're going to try to cure your your fear of heights, you have to, in traditional therapy, you have to go and expose yourself to heights or, you know, approach a ledge over and over again, maybe 20, 30, 40 times. Every time you do it, you get a bit closer to the ledge, a bit closer to the ledge, a bit closer to the ledge. And it's very, very difficult on people. And many people stop doing exposure therapy because it's so taxing, it's so difficult to do over and over. But in virtual reality, you can, you can do that thing. You have to do it over and over also. But you can actually not just approach the ledge, but you could, you could jump. Right, you could jump into, you could jump over the cliff if you really, if you really want to conquer your fear of heights. You could jump over this cliff or jump into this big hole, um, and of course, you're not going to get hurt if anything goes wrong because it's all virtual. But the fears and the responses and the, any kind of curing that that happens is is all real, also, mm-hmm. or in any case. And, it's and so, true. in the film, yeah, that's what we see: was this guy afraid of heights, and he uh, he does only one session, and he's he already shows a marked uh, advance. Two very different ways of approaching um, these phobias, for sure. Uh, very, yeah. very. It's 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 an interesting thing to watch. I was uh, my stomach got a little bit when I was watching this. You know, I I envision you know the virtual reality goggles on and he's approaching this thing, and I'm I, uh, to me I'm like, oh, that would be if I was afraid of that. That would being in 3D and seeing in front of me that would be that would be uh, heart wrenching. I think, but. <laughs> It's funny because we were filming, you know, and we, we don't see, you know, we see a little bit what he can see. It's projected onto the walls, <clears throat> but it's it's much less of a of a good illusion for us, right? Because we don't have the fully immersive goggles on, yeah. and so we're filming. So it's quite funny because at one point he's very afraid of jumping into the hole, but really it's just a picture on the floor, right? So when he jumps, he's just he's hopping, yeah. <laughs> he's hopping <laughs> on the floor. So from the outside, it's quite ridiculous. I know, but it, it's, <laughs> but it, inside, he's totally gripped. I, I don't know if you ever actually had those 3D goggles. It's very real. 
It's very, very oh, yeah, real. No, for sure. so no and, and even without the goggles, I mean, we could still, you could, you still feel that tension. You still feel that because uh, you're, you're locked in, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're watching him be afraid and you're super connected at the same time. It's you're quite hoping You're quite hoping remarkable. he goes up another rung of the ladder. Yeah, you're invested. Yeah, yeah. You're much more invested yeah. when you're seeing someone like that as opposed to taking a pill. Two very different aspects and ways of uh, training out fears. Now, some people, yeah. though, love the fear. And this isn't the, this is very different from not having fear at all versus getting a real rush from fear. Yeah. And this is interesting to me too. Just in my own family dynamic, I've got nieces and nephews who from a very young age love scary movies and my kids still like to watch Bambi and get a, you know very right. get upset when the mother is shot at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, Two very sure. very different uh, <laughs> types of kids. What is it that you found propels these people the 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 man that that you did on the that you video that you videoed that you filmed on uh, the show was was a motorcycle stunt man like an evil Knievel type of of person what did you find that drove him he had fear yeah yeah he he has fear and and the interesting thing about him is that he he so he does feel fear and he describes, you know, being white knuckled on his bike when he's trying a new stunt that he feels is dangerous um, or having failed and having to do it again. He's, you know, he's type he's breathing very deeply. So it's clear he's, he's connected. He's not, doesn't have an aberration in his brain. Um, but he has this remarkable ability to feel all that like you and I would, uh, and then just turn it aside, just sort of turn it away or shut it down and focus in on what he needs to do, which is, okay, I got to get it together. I got to ride my bike at a certain speed. I got to pull it up at this degree. I got to launch my body this way. You know, just zoom in onto that and sort of bypass that fearful uh, emotion, which for most people would just turn them off completely. They'd say, forget it. I'm not going to do this. And at the same time, he, and the research that Dr. Zald, who's in the film, who, who studies this motor stunt, motocross stunt man, um, he, apparently it looks like in his brain, after he overcomes his fears and does these stunts, he gets an extra boost, a kind of extra reward in his brain, more than you and I would probably get. So it's a more of a flood of dopamine, apparently. Um, and that seems to be typical of thrill seekers is that they have this extra extra boost of, of reward. So there's sort of two aspects. One is this desire to go towards fear and, and, and be able to deal with it. And the second is getting an extra jolt or an extra reward once they've done it. It's funny, I was watching the film, and, and all I could think of is uh, we have a, a, a dog next door um, in our place up north, and they've got the invisible fence and they've got two dogs, and the one dog, you know, they put that collar on so that they get a little zap if they go towards the fence. The one dog doesn't go near the fence, but the other little guy will just take that hit to break through the line. And, you know, he knows it's gonna, he's going to be lined up for a shock, but what's waiting on the other right. side is just so great for him. And I just kept right. thinking of that analogy. Roberto? Yep. Oh, are you there? Okay, sorry. I thought we uh, lost sorry, you. Yeah, I thought you cut out for a second. Oh, we might yeah, have. No, that's a good, a good example. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think this is and like different dog breeds. I mean, there's just genetic differences too between people. Um, and it's partly that. It's partly biographical, what you grew up with and the experiences you had as you're growing up. And then just genetic sort of differences, being more or less timid and, and more or less eager and, and we're for not, those kinds of thrilling experiences. We're not talking about people that are, you know, go to the extremes of, you know, having to be on a bike and, and jumping. Um, 
video games are they are brought up in in um in the documentary as well and the amount of money people spend on video games um we didn't touch like horror movies or anything like that but people buy to become uh, put into that that fear state. People pay for it. Mm-hmm. They pay for it in haunted houses. And there's um, you know great research going on in the video gaming market and how the scariest video games are really the ones that that these developers are looking for. Yeah, yeah. Video games are almost overtaking, and or and, well, the video game industry I think has overtaken the film industry, but um, in terms of profits and so on. But uh, incredibly popular, sort of survival horror is the genre, um, and, and it was the whole issue of for us, you know. We understand why people want to deal with their fears, why they want to get away from fears, cure their phobias. But then at the same time, we have, as human beings, we're a weird species. We have clearly this this drive towards scary experiences, right? So what would drive people to spend all that money in a video game that's going to freak it's going to freak you out as, mm-hmm. you're, as you're playing it, right? Or scary movies where you're in the theater or at home and you're watching it and you're thinking, why am I watching this? I am scared out of my wits right now. But then you, you, know, you keep watching it and you watch the next one too. So we have a sociologist who's Margie Kerr who studies that this phenomenon in haunted houses. Um, And we also have Teresa Lynch at Ohio State who uses video games and and horror video games to study fear and fear responses because it's it allows her much more data than it's sort of it's much easier to wire somebody up and to study their responses as they're playing a video game than it is to try to get people to talk about their experiences after watching a scary movie. For example, it's much more. Uh, real and plus, in a video game, you you are the agent, right? In a movie, you're watching the person, and you're sort of thinking in your head, "No, don't open that door. What are you doing? Don't go up there. What are you doing?" But in the video game, it's you, right? You have to go up the stairs, up, open that door. You don't have to if you don't want to, but if you don't, then you know the, the game doesn't. Nothing happens. So, so you have much more agency. So it's more interesting for them to study that thing. Well, but we it, thought, yeah, it was an interesting question to see why, you know, why do we willingly put ourselves in these situations? Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure if the answer was ever given because, it, I mean, there are just so yeah. many various reasons why people would do it. And again, we're not talking about the, the stunt people. We're talking about everyday people who want to be afraid. And the interesting yeah, thing is that comes out, uh, especially within the, um, the amount of money, I guess, people paid to develop great products, great haunted houses and everything. And it's not just our visual, is it? I mean, probably the greatest scare, and this came out in, 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 the, um, in the documentary, is where it, the fear is sort of touching on all of our senses, our sight, yeah. uh, our smells. So in the haunted house, smells can evoke fear. That, that to me was very, very interesting. We, we can have fear from many different uh, sensual experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And the haunted house was a great uh, opportunity for us to look at all that because they, a good haunted house will touch on all those things, right? The visuals, of course, even the tactile, you're walking through a dark corridor and you feel something closing, you know, pushing you from the side. You don't know what it is. In fact, it's these two giant sort of balloons or bladders squeezing. So you feel, start to feel claustrophobic or something kind of, you know, maybe sticky on your skin. You don't know what it is. It's dark. You just feel this and also sounds and smells and all that stuff. So for sure, the, the fears can work at all those levels and they, and they should to keep the person, you know, freaked out. Enough. Yeah. No, I guess <laughs> total experience. You know, we're ta- when we're walking through a haunted house, it's more of a, a fright as opposed to a fear. Is is that um, 
played upon at all? Like, because, you know, we're not afraid maybe of putting our hands in goo when we can see it, but we're, you know, when we're going through and it's dark, these are, these are scares more than fears. Is that correct? Or does it all feed into the same mechanism? Yeah, it's all the same kind of mechanism in, in the end. I mean, um, you can get spooked and you can get scared. You can be, you can, somebody can jump out at you and go, ah, right? There's that scare response, um, that scare. But, but it's all kind of the same. It's all part of your brain, your body saying, be careful. This is weird, perhaps dangerous. What's going on? I don't know what's going on. And so I think often in a good haunted house or in a good suspense movie and so on, they just try to keep you in that state where, where you don't actually know that you, know, you don't actually see the monster that's going to come and attack you, but you always have this sense that maybe, you know, is there something there? Is there something that's going to jump out at me? And if it is, where is it going to come from? Where? So it keeps you in that heightened sense of uh, anxiety, of, yeah, suspense somehow. Suspense always guessing, and, and your brain is really just looking, scanning what's what's dangerous, what's dangerous, something's dangerous, something's you know, and that's the thrill. And interesting that came out of that, that more women than men go seek out these thrills? Yeah, I mean, it's not a huge statistical difference. It's about 55 to 45%, according to Margie's, um, you know, data. But she also sort of said that she thinks it might just be because it looks like women are the ones who tend to organize social events <laughs> more than men. Yeah. So, you know, it looks like men and women both like going to haunted houses, but it may be that the women are the ones who actually organize the outing. And so it could be that's why there's more, okay. you know, 55% more women. There's a lot more to read into the statistic is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, or that it's not... Um, you know, it's not significantly, it's not a, if it was 70-30, then I think you could say, wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. More women like haunted houses than men. But at a level of 55-45, it's not uh, not statistically significant, really. But, a, but it seems to be mm-hmm. regularly well, a little bit more women. Women like, the, women like the fear as much as the men. We put it on that even plateau. It, it's, it's oh, not, yeah, for I, sure, absolutely. Probably going in, it would be, you know, most people would think it would be completely the other way, that men go and seek out the fears. But you know what? Women like, women like the fear as much. Now, the show is already out on the CBC. Um, it, it came out, what, last? It came out November, beginning of November. Was that correct? Yeah, it aired on the 2nd of November, okay. and it's been available on the streaming service, Gem. .cbc.ca since okay. uh, middle of October, I think, just before Halloween. So people can go there to watch it. And if people are interested in finding out more about you, do you have social media sites that you'd like to share? Uh, I, I don't, really. I have a, you know, this film was produced by 90th Parallel, and that's okay. the production company, so there's info there. But really, the Nature of Things website, uh, CBC Nature of Things, has sort of additional articles on some of the stuff in the show and some of the people in the show. So that's a good resource, I think. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. It's a really great documentary. It's hard to believe you can get something like that done in such a short period of time, but I really did enjoy it. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, for sure. My pleasure, and everybody will talk to you next week on The Health Hub.
have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.